All right, here we go. Scott Hudson on Grind My Gears finally got him on, the handsome one. Still looking handsome on screen, too. <laughs> it's getting uglier every day, man. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait till you have kids. Uh, then it <laughs> exponentially gets worse. <laughs> so how's everything going with you? How's, uh, how's life treating you uh, these last two? I haven't seen you in about two, two years plus in person, but uh, how's everything going? Yeah, good, man. Just, uh, you know, training every day, working every day, you know. Same stuff over here in the gym every day. Get to do what I love. So, you yes. know, no, same no. shit, different day. Now, no, uh, no real complaints on my end. Well, we, I mean, the last two years gave us a lot of complaints, but I mean, yeah. we'll get into that shit. But, um, how, uh, how's married life treating you? Cause I, I know the last time I saw you were just about getting married and I think you're good. What, two, two years now? Three years? Probably. It'll be three years in August. So, like, ah. we got, we got married in August of 2019, so it would have been, yeah, three years in August. It's great, man. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Well, those kids, those kids are coming soon. I see it. Working on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today, obviously, fighting. Scott's a your amazing professional fighter, knocking on the door of the UFC and other major promotions. You should be in it already, in my opinion. But uh, that's yeah. another, that's another topic. But uh. The one thing I wanted to ask is how has been the last two, three years training during a pandemic and, and preparing? I know you fought in the heart of the pandemic, like in 2020. And yep. then um, last year you had a lot of cancellations in terms of fights. Uh, but how was it like just, you know, being an athlete preparing during the pandemic, especially when uh, gyms for MMA were, were pretty much targeted for shutting down a lot? Um, well, when, when the pandemic first kicked off, I was on vacation in Cuba, uh, with my wife. So when we came back, everything was really new and we were required to quarantine for two weeks, yeah. which I did. And then, you know, would basically start going in back into the gym behind closed doors, um, you know, training and, and doing whatever we could do. Like some people were still kind of weird about it and there was no real like big group settings or, or, or much travel going on but we were still training behind closed doors and like um it wasn't ideal because like as you know from just being in the gta mma scene like lots of guys travel around like it's yeah. not if you take everybody's individual group they're kind of not not massive rooms right we kind of rely on people moving around from place to place to kind of get yeah. those big groups going and that was kind of not happening for a bit and um, so I think in like September or August of 2020, I like the writing was already on the wall. Like it was going to be shit for a long time. And like, I couldn't work really. You know what I mean? Like I was training people like, just like you, like in parks, like all over the place, going yeah. to people's backyards, coming over here, you know, go going, going from place to place back into the gym to train um going all going all around traveling with all my gear with me so i opened like just like a small place with uh bobby poulter that we could train in as well and um you know see clients in, and we had the ability to kind of do that behind closed doors and it was great yeah and just around the same time para closed completely yeah right so a lot of people don't know this but we had like basically most of the pros from from para training in my 600 square foot gym as a team 
for, for literally months. Like we were doing camps there and we would go from place to place. Like we would go to Niagara maybe a couple times a week. Yeah. And, uh, but like literally like there was like, we had like a little sweatshop going on where we had, you know, eight, nine guys in 600 square feet mat space, like just, just completely like in hindsight completely bonkers now what we were doing right but it's it's like fight club like literally underneath (laughs) and i remember uh, i was talking to aaron jeffries a a few weeks ago and i had him on and he was saying how they were training one day and a bylaw came and he's like he's never seen the mats clear out that fast like he's never seen grown men run out that fast uh yeah and i i mean it's a shame that it even came to that as professional athletes, right? That you even had to worry about that. Whereas you look at, and I'm not knocking on, you know, hockey players or the Maple Leafs or nothing like that. Um, I know people get mad at me because it's playoff time and it's like fucking knocking on Leafs. But, you know, they were given special privileges, you know, to be able to go to restaurants, do whatever the fuck they want, yeah. uh, travel. But other professional athletes, even Olympians, uh, were restricted to even training. Right. So, I mean, how was it like, did it mentally kind of fuck with you a little bit preparing for your fights, having to deal with that bullshit on the side? Um, I mean, it, like the thing is, is that it, it wasn't ideal. And like, that's the thing is that if you, you know, from being a competitor, like if you just only operate under ideal situations in MMA, like what you're not going to get, nothing's going to happen for you. Right. So it's yeah. like with injuries and everything like that, you kind of got to accept a level of bullshit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that I'm pretty good at rolling with the punches and stuff like that. But I mean, yeah, like it was less than ideal. And as far as like how, who and what were allowed to like train for their sport, like sure. The NHL is one example, but I think that that's just a money thing. Like, you know what I mean? But there was, it was really strange and I'm not just trying to like defend MMA or anything like that, but there was lots of sports where it was like, how come this is allowed, but this is allowed or this is and this isn't it makes no sense and you could say that you could make the same argument if you were like even a soccer player like they had one point where they were like not allowing people to use public soccer fields which again in hindsight is completely fucking ridiculous i almost got arrested one day and i I shouldn't say arrested i would have got arrested if i continued on with it but uh we were hitting pads at the park (laughs) across the street from the gym and a bylaw guy came to uh, us and said, no, you can't do that. It's not six feet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I obviously I made this shit up on the spot. I'm like, you know, we're in the same household. It's like, then why'd you take two cars? I'm like, that's none of your fucking business. Yeah. I got I to go to work. So we took two fucking cars. And then uh, obviously my teammate kind of was like, Ashton, calm down. Because you see, I was getting heated about it. And and then, you know, when... um. People, he's like, he's like, oh yeah, I train too, so, and I can tell you when you throw a kick, it's not six. I'm like, shut the fuck up, and I, I was getting really heated because I, so I, I never thought it would come to a point where me exercising, training at a park, was like a criminal offense, right? And so I was starting to get heated, and my buddy's like, just get the fuck out. We ended up like driving into a back alley because we were so fucking amped up at that point, hitting pads in the back alley. I felt like a thug. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, but I mean that's well, what we had to do. They definitely had a way of making people feel like criminals, and like um, it, it, again, there, there's going to be so many things that we look back on, and like, okay, obviously, you got people like you and me thought that, that was stupid at the time, but like some of the things that were going on, like uh, with restaurants and like everything, it's just completely asinine. And like, at, the more we get back into sort of like 
just normal, normal life. The more I look back and I was like, what the fuck were people thinking? Like who, like, why were people so willing to just go along with this like nonsense? It's, it's completely, it's actually like infuriating at times. Yeah, and, and even the, the thing that you were talking about being in a park and, and like, man, it just, I don't know. It, it boggles the mind that we actually at one point went through that. It's nuts. Yeah. And the, the crazy part is like now that we've gotten this far past all the bullshit, right? You would think that things would get better in terms of how people are understanding things. But when one of the things that it like is crazy to me is like we're now allowed to like you can go to a Leafs game, you can go to a Raptors game and gather, you can go to like Maple Leaf Square where they all fucking gather and like literally in a crowd like this, but it's still illegal for some Canadians to travel. It's yeah. still, it's, you know what I mean? Like the, when we, like you said, when we look back on this and, you know, 10, when our kids look back on this in 10, 15 years, they'd be like, dad, what the fuck were you guys? Like, what were you guys thinking? This is bananas. Or maybe not, or they are so like tuned into that, that they will see this from a completely different perspective because it's going to, they're going to grow up where stuff like that is completely normal. You know what yeah. I mean? Actually, I was thinking about this like last night, how like not just COVID restrictions and stuff like this, but like how think about how like addicting technology is right now and how like adults react to it. Yeah. Be it email, social media, everything, your phone, because it, you, you know, it's addicting. It's, it's full blown addicting like a drug. Yeah. And like our kids met like that are young now that are two or three year olds. Now, are they going to kind of like have the same, are they going to react to their addiction in the same way that we are right now? Where We're kind of like, I think there's a lot of people that are like mine or your age or older that are sort of like half in half out on whether or not they, they, they need it in their life or not. But like, are there going to be like, youngsters who now have to go to like you know technology anonymous and like have to be on like seriously like yeah. um and i think i i always relate this back to steve jobs like the inventor of the fucking ipad the one of the things that shocked my shocked me when i figured this out was he actually never let his kids use an ipad because sure. he he saw the addiction that goes along with technology and and all that kind of and how vulnerable and pliable the mind is when when you're that young, right? Uh, and I saw it with my kid because you know I used to take my daughter to the gym all the time because my uh, before the pandemic my wife was wor working full time, so I yeah. we kind of juggle things where I was taking care of her a lot, and I would give her a tablet and train, right? And that was fine. But what we noticed at the start of the pandemic was she would start pulling out the tablet and she was not allowed to use it at home, but she would start pulling out the tablet, watching the tablet while having the TV going on too. So it's like two screens at the same time. And that's when I was like, no, something's off there. So now it's just completely taken away. Like once, yeah. once in a while, I'll give her that, but it goes back to what you were saying, like the, how pliable the mind was. And with all the restrictions and different measures that was taken, like, how are the kids going to, you know, develop thinking that this kind of stuff is normal, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I, I I think I told Lyndon this when I when I was talking to him. I was at the – we were at the ski hill – or at Toboggan Hill. 
right? And my little guy, he's two, he's two years old, goes down the hill, and he's got a mind of his own. He just fucking goes running off into it. So he goes running off to these two other kids. Can't be more than 10 or 11 years old. And they go, he's hopping, and he's, like, excited. He's, like, wanting, he's a baby. He's wanting to play with them. And they go to the kid, they, they go to my son, they're like, oh, sorry, we can't play with you because of COVID. Yeah. And I'm like, he's a, he's a baby. Yeah. Like, he's not a fucking disease. And yeah. That's, that's like literally what they said to him. They're like, we can't play with you because of COVID. And they were both wearing masks too outside. I'm like, well, what more do you, like, I, I'm not, you didn't have to play with my kid. But at the same time, I was just shocked by the fact that, that's what's going through their head. It was like a, a little tiny baby came up to you smiling. And the first thing you think about is I can't touch you because of COVID. Like, yeah, I know it's sad. It, it's sad. And, and it, it makes me question what's going to happen in the next five years in terms of those kids. But fuck. I, um, I, I train a bylaw officer okay. and um, he was telling me during the pandemic and he was training in my, in my like a little underground gym, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, that he was told to go to these tobogganing hills and, and like enforce uh, mask mandates on the people who are outside tobogganing. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So he's going, he's going to these hills. I'm not sure if he actually did this or not, but he was told to go to these hills and make sure that people are res- like, you know, respecting social distancing and keeping their masks on outside in, you know, minus 10 degree weather. It's, it's, it's just like, again, it's one of those things where it's like, what are you thinking? Like, yeah. is this really a good use of time? Is this really a good use of money? Like, no, no but, no, but it's, it's complete nonsense. Well, right? it's, a, it's about control, but that's a oh, whole, yeah. no, that's a whole nother 10 hour conversation. <laughs> but, uh, in 2020, when you fought, what was it like, um, fighting under those kind of restrictions and traveling to, to, cause you fought uh, for XFC, right? That yeah. Year. And I think it was in like November of 2020. So things had seemed to sort of chill out a little bit in like the summer here, but then had just like typical, just like respiratory season had ramped back up yeah. and uh, people freaking the fuck out. But when the, the, the most difficult part of, um, that experience was the actual travel, right? So like I had to travel internationally um, and I had to take all of my food with me because I was cutting weight and like, um, you know, that was a little bit of a struggle, but like once I fought in Atlanta yeah, and once we, and this was during like the presidential, like right, like right during the election process. And there was a lot of drama going on with, the well, vote counting in sh- in in Georgia, and there right? was a so shooting things, there too, right? There was a yeah. So things were too. things were really weird in Georgia, not because of COVID though. So basically, how it worked is that when we got to the hotel, um, and, and everything was pretty lax, like they wanted you to wear a mask and stuff like that. But the basically, like they took everybody, all of the fighters and staff, into a boardroom or into like a big conference room. They tested everybody and basically said, like, listen. <laughs> Um, you know, we can't make you stay in the hotel. We don't really expect you to stay in the hotel, but like we've created an environment where you can go eat all your meals are comped. Everything you need is here. And like, if you go out tonight and go to a fucking bar and get COVID, you're going to fuck a lot of people over because it it doesn't matter if you're sick or not, we're going to have to test everybody one more time. And if your fighter is positive, regardless of his symptoms, we've got to pull them. 
Yeah. So they're basically like, we've, we've created a little bit of a bubble. We're not, we're not saying don't leave, but like, just kind of like, let's make sure that this event goes off and it was fine. And then actually after the fight, so, you know, I think the fighters had a lot more leeway to not wear a mask and do whatever they want Yeah. in the hotel. It was all good. But after the fight, Lyndon and I went and like sat in a bar in a restaurant with people around like, uh, it for the first time in almost a year. Yeah. It was it was completely bonkers to me. And they were just like living their life, you know, no big deal. And the the problems that they were having around the election seemed to be way more of a talking point than right. COVID was. And yeah. this is during like peak COVID. Like I was sitting in a sitting in a restaurant next to a stranger and it was like such a breath of fresh air. You know what I mean? Yeah. That uh yeah, it was it was it was great. Well, even if you consider what's going on now i think last year was most the most evident that when they changed the news cycle so like when covid stuff ramps up and they feel like people aren't paying attention anymore it's like here's another problem so yep. it takes you it distracts you but once that kind of like fades a little bit then they bring the covid back it's it's almost like a constant media government news cycle <clears throat> that they're feeding you with anxiety the whole time to kind of keep you almost stimulated into certain things and i've noticed it this year especially like you start you start the year with covid then you go into the war stuff and everyone's afraid of world war three and then they bring covid a little bit back they then now it's like abortion laws in the states and johnny depp johnny like there was more there's more coverage of johnny depp's wife shitting on his bed than Gisling Maxwell sending, you know, women to get raped and fucking, yeah. you know what I mean? Elites in the eye. I mean, that's probably, Spotify will probably censor that shit, but fuck that. Like, you know what I mean? The, there's a constant anxiety news cycle that's changing oh. everything. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this year we, we see, you know, COVID make its triumphant return. You know, I, I, I mean, I hope lockdowns don't happen again, but uh, that's another political thing. I think with the yeah. provincial election coming up, that might change. But um, the, uh, the precedent is set for that stuff. You know what I mean? Like they know. And I think that it's going to bleed into like climate change and stuff like that. But the precedent has been set that they can basically do this stuff whenever they want with like very little resistance. Very, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that many people didn't pay attention to, and it's kind of influencing my business decisions going forward was um, – Ford put in a legislation that uh, I think the reopening act, which gives them the ability, I think, and I think most provinces did this. And I think a lot of states in the U S did this where it allows them to put in emergency measures whenever. Right. And then yep. what was happening was, and they did it very sneakily and subtly and the public didn't really know about it unless you were paying attention is every two months, three months, this act needed to kind of go through the process again to get extended. And extended so he's actually has that act extended to the end of this year yeah right so the fact that that act is extended to the end of this year means that at any point in time if they decide that there's a public health emergency they can reinforce lockdowns without having to go through the house and having mps and parliament vote on it yep. which is a very dangerous precedent and <sighs> i believe i could be wrong uh but i believe they're trying to make that a permanent um, fixture in in especially Ontario legislation, you know. And as a business owner, like you, you run your own business. I run my own business. That makes it extremely risky to, you know, take on new projects, new moves because 
especially in industries like fitness, industries like martial arts, industries like restaurants that were targeted before as problems, yeah. it makes it extremely difficult to even want to participate in, the, in expanding business because that little sneaky piece of legislature there can literally damage your finances permanently uh, if you decided to, say, open up a, a big gym right now. You know what yeah, I mean? it's a big risk. And it's a big risk to take on that type of debt as well, right? Yeah. So because it's not like it's not like you're gonna get any leeway from a bank or anything like or you know, or any leeway from the government for that matter. Like it's just you would be if if they decide like, you know, this is this is how it's gonna be, you know, yeah. they don't they don't give a fuck about you. And like no. so and you know, I don't not that I not that I need anybody to, to care about me. No. on their end but yeah. i would like to just be left alone and let me run my business and, and hold myself responsible for the health and safety of my clientele yeah exactly right yeah. <laughs> so i don't need i don't need like it's it's like super condescending for somebody in that position to like look at somebody like you or i and say like you know we we are concerned for your health we are concerned for your health and safety it's like that's complete nonsense like yeah. well, it just and, it's and, infuriating it, all that aside, it, the the part that's infuriating the most is the people that are trying to tell me they're concerned for my health are fat as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't tell me about health. Like, even the doctors that are talking, I'm like, this motherfucker hasn't run a lap in his life. What are you telling me about how, how to how to be healthy, right? I'm yeah. not saying you need to run 700 meters fucking a daily to, or seven kilometers daily to be healthy, but I'm saying, I'm saying the people who are making these health decisions really don't know how to be healthy themselves. It's, no. you know, and a lot of these decisions are people who are book smart, but are not necessarily, you know, actually practitioners of health and, and, and wellness. You know what I mean? And chances are they're extremely risk adverse as well. Like that's why they became doctors. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and I'm not saying that that's, there's not like nobility in that profession because there definitely is, but at the same time, like, well, I mean, I think, I think of, think of, think of all the other things that I do in my life that my doctor would be like, yeah, I probably should do that. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? But I, 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 like, I literally just don't take your advice. Like it's, yeah. it's fine. Well, <laughs> I think, I think the biggest thing to take away from this is a big difference. I think it's a wrong classification. Everyone classifies it as health, health, healthcare, yeah. right? Where, I classify that as sick care. I don't go to the hospital if I want to get healthier. I go to the yeah. hospital when I have a problem, right? Yeah, yeah. So they manage me when I'm sick, when I have an ailment, you know, when I tear something, because I tend to do that a lot. I like to tear fucking ligaments and shit and get surgeries. When I, when I, when I, that's when I'm sick. I, I need help. I need physical yeah. help. But healthcare, in my opinion, is things that, other people do like naturopaths that that take you a, a person that maybe has a little bit of an issue, but you prolong the person's life through taking you know exercise, diet, uh, mental health. All those people, in my opinion, are healthcare practitioners. And whereas mm. and whereas doctors, and I'm not putting doctors down by any means, it's more of a sick care. You come to me when your ailment is there. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? So I think yeah. that's. The, the separation between what's going on right now is we've has this giant classification of healthcare as an all encompassing thing of health where it is not that right and that's what I mean that's a that's what I think it is but 
one of the one of the things I wanted to ask you about is your your training regimen. Like, what is a typical Scott Hudson week camp kind of look like, and how do you structure it? Like, you're so deep into your career now. How do you? How have you structured your your training regimen now? So I try like when I'm not in camp, I try to do something every single day. So like um, at uh, Aegis, we have like a, a pro program where I can just show up and like the classes are set for me, the group trainings are set for me. So there's a there's something to do every single day. But even if like I need to take a break from from that or take a day off from 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 like the hard grind, I still will go for a run. I'll still try to get a lift in. Um, I've been like taking weekends off a lot because another thing too, is that I'm getting older. I'm 34. Right. So yeah. I can't train in the same way that I did six or seven years ago. Yeah. Um, so like Monday we go to Niagara to wrestle Tuesday, we do jujitsu, then sparring, then wrestling, you know what I mean? So, and then striking. And it's like, we, I always have something to do and I always have like, you know, good people around me to help me stay sharp. Yeah. And then actually one thing that changes when I am in camp is that I'm just a little bit more diligent about my rest. So like I'll look at my week coming up and I'll, I'll plan my, my training sets, my training sessions and my schedule. And I have to kind of look at this and say like, okay, how am I going to make it to Thursday without dying on Friday? Like I've got to make sure to kind of like be good to my body. And there are times where I'm in camp, but I'll actually train a little bit less just yeah. because I want to be fresh where it's like, okay, if I'm, you know, if I'm just feeling it on a Monday, I go hard, wrestle hard, train the next day, train twice the next day, spar hard on Wednesday. And then on Wednesday night, I'll be sitting on the couch. Like, man, I feel like I'm going to die. Yeah. Right? And I, I want to try to avoid that when I'm, when I'm in training camp, because you can't really afford necessarily to take longer breaks. And I think that like, I think that for sure, you do need to kind of be smart with your training when you're, you know, above 30 and um, try to get the most out of your training. Like for me, it's really about quality, not quantity now. So like, for example, I don't need to train three and a half hours a day. Like if I have like two 45 minute sessions or two one hour sessions where it's completely dialed in, yeah. I feel like I get way more benefits out of that than just kind of going through the motions and like. Just killing yourself, breaking yourself down. Yeah. And there's like, there's definitely like, I think you have to go through this when you're younger. Like, I think that it is an important part of like being a competitor, but there's definitely a point of like no return on investment in your training. If I'm dying and I'm going through the motions, like you could be getting worse. Yes. hundred. You, know, you know what I mean? Like I want to get better. I don't want to get worse. And if I can't, you know, cause you, when you're overtrained or it, I shouldn't even say, I don't even like saying overtrained, but when you know how it feels when you're in a training session and you're just like, man, I, this is the last place. This is the last place I want to be right yeah. now. Like I want to make sure that I'm fresh. I want to look forward to training and um, you, your, your mental state's important for that and trying to avoid burnout over long periods of time is important as well. So like if I'm in the gym every day doing something and then man, I'm talking about like maybe just today, I'm just going to lift or, or something like that just to kind of, you know, keep my body in check. That's fine. If I do that every day, I don't need to have, a 10 or a 12 week training camp. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm not starting from zero. I want to sort of maintain uh, a manageable pace so that when I ramp it up, I'm, I can, I can peak at the right times. Right. Yeah. Because I know how it feels to kind of like burn out two weeks, three weeks before the fight. Right? Yeah. You really don't want that. And like, 
I also don't try to put too much, too much emphasis too far out on my opponent because I feel like it makes me do things that I wouldn't normally do. And it, yeah. it can actually like hurt my development. Right. So I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm training every day. I'm getting better. I'm dialed in. And like for somebody like me, like I, I think I'm coming up on my 20th pro fight. This is like the gains that I'm going to make now are smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And they're not going to be solved by, you know, just quantity. Yeah. Right. But if I'm not in camp, it's, it's fine. Like I, I don't mind training three hours a day and then, okay, maybe I need a couple of days off. That's fine. I'm not going to yeah. lose anything, but just trying to be smart about what I'm doing in training camp. And you know what I mean? It, it sucks too, because like I thought some of the guys I train with are machines, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's like, they're fucking, they're, they're, they're still going, you know what I mean? And I'm like, man, I should probably just take a break, but it's hard to like tell yourself that because you see these guys doing well, it. The worst fuck. part is when you fucking log on to Instagram and you go on a story like that motherfucker's in the gym again. Jesus, yeah. I gotta get right. And like, I think it's important what you said there, and that was my Achilles heel, and that's why, you know, my pro career has gone the way it has in terms of injuries, is because I, I was brought up in the football universe, right? I played football for a long time, and I played in, in university, and it was like, you fucking show up, right? You show up no matter what, the team's depending on you, so I've always, which is a, a great mentality to keep, but I've always had this mentality that I have to always show up, someone's always counting on me to show up. And which is true in some aspects, but I was not putting myself first, like how mm. I felt. So, like what you said, there was, I can, there's no way I can count on my hand because I need like thirty thousand hands. How many times in my twenties, even into my in my my thirties now, where I was in the gym when I was like I shouldn't have been, you know what yeah. I mean? Where I was worn out, and like you said, I was doing things like say you're working on you know a simple you know out step being explosive going in and out well if you've been in the gym for three hours how fucking fast do you think that step is you're no longer developing a fast step to get out of range you're now being slow fuck right yeah. so i think there's there's the point of diminishing returns and i think for young fighters that are going through the game if they can learn anything from what we're just talking about right now it's just you know it's very easy to get into the gym and put in six hours of work a day um, which i don't discourage because at, at certain points in your career you kind of do that because your body allows you to do that but like you said dialing in and making sure the skill part about it is focused and that each time you train you have a specific goal in mind and once you meet that goal get the fuck out of the gym yeah <laughs> right because a lot of my injuries happened when i was in the gym past when i should have been in the gym yeah right where like i'll take for example when i tore my acl i had done a full mma practice and sparring and then i was like oh let me just throw on my fucking gi and and roll yeah so i ended up tearing my acl and the only reason i tore my acl was not because my acl was weak it was because i was fucking rolling when i was already tired yeah, yeah. thinking thinking that the more i do the better i'll get Whereas what ended up happening, it ended up taking me out for six to eight months, right? And affecting the rest of my, my knee for the rest of my career. So it, it, it's, a, it's a very, I, I like what you said in terms of being able to dial in, right? And having specific targeted sessions, like you rather have two 45 minute sessions than, you know, three hour long. Yep. And, and like, um, 
you know, you know how it feels when you're like, it's a spark, like the, the stuff that's most fun in MMA is like the hardest on your body. Right. Like, so like, say you're, you go to jiu-jitsu or you go to Nogi or something like that. And you're on your fucking seventh or eighth round. You're like, man, this is so much fun. I love this so much. And then you yeah. wake up the next day and you're like, Oh my God, yeah. what the fuck happened? You know what I mean? Where it's like, you should just, you know, get your rounds in, be happy, be happy that you did it. Be happy that you survived. And then just like, Okay, next day is not so bad, but it's yeah. like when you're in it, it's hard to turn it off because it's it is fun. Mike's bar- yeah. barring's fucking fun. Oh, it yeah. is rolling's fun. It's so much fun. Like I understand why people want to do it a lot. Like I want to do it a lot too, but like now I've just got to kind of tell myself, and you like you only get that from experience. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm not I'm I'm at a point in my career where it's like I'm not going to bridge the skill gap with time. Yeah. Whereas like when you first started training. Okay, you had the ability to train a little bit more, but also you needed to learn so many, so many things, things that the yeah. time requirement was bigger, right? Yeah. And um, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get through that with without any injuries. I've been really lucky to not have anything really serious happen to me, but you know, just like normal normal wear and tear on my body and like I think that I take care of myself pretty good. Like I, I train pretty smart. I think I'm with strength and conditioning, I train pretty smart and I eat pretty well. So yeah. and, I, and I try to keep something consistent throughout my life not necessarily fighting like i'm in training camp so i've got to take care of it like i want to be an athlete until i die i don't want to just have a strong career now right so i think that that's like a good outlook a a good outlet for me to have i think that it works for me and um you you know you've got to make a decision about what you're doing in training and what you're doing with your nutrition about how it affects your day-to-day life yeah not just um you know you're cutting weight specifically for this or you you know what i mean like i try to keep like a pretty good mindset consistently throughout my life with everything that i want to do because when i'm when i'm 45 i still want to be able to train to some capacity you know what i mean i want to be able to do it in a way that i can enjoy it yeah i think it's most important for me i and one of the strategies i've been using because i mean it's no secret everybody knows that i've had tremendous amount of injuries uh in my career but one of the things i've been doing to help preserve myself and and kind of keep is at the start of the week, I kind of put down how many rounds of everything I want to achieve. So in terms of rolling, I'll normally put down 12 because it's very easy to hit that number, right? Because uh, you can, like you said, you can be in the gym and get carried away and roll like fucking. So I'll put down like something like 12. I want to do 12, but I'm going to, what I've started to do is kind of the hardest part is splitting it up over the two. Because there's it's like I said, you could go to the gym right now and roll 12 rounds, but then the next day you feel like shit, right? So it was something where I'm I'm trying to get really disciplined where I'll say, okay, I'm going to roll 12 times. I'm going to do four extremely hard. So I'm going to find really good guys and do four rounds extremely hard. So something I started to do is I'll do those, say I'll do those four rounds t- today. The other, I'll do six more another day against, you know, white and blue belts. Just, just kind of keep my, and then I'll finish off the last of them, you know, towards the end of the week. But I find like, me using that strategy does two things. One, it preserves my body so that I don't feel like shit throughout the week. But two, it also gives me a little bit of mental discipline because there's so many times I'm like, all right, I did my four hard rounds, but I want to do more. But no, four. You did your fucking four or five. Get the fuck out of the gym. Stretch. Get yep. the fuck out. And I think that that's, that's the hardest part is like our, our stupid men, men brain. <laughs> our stupid yeah. man brains want to be like, let's keep going. But if I find like structuring it like that, where you know how like sometimes you you know you came up in Muay Thai where you go to Muay Thai practice and you you're like sparring and then by the end of it you're like 
I just did 15 fucking sparring rounds. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the next day you're broken, right? Yeah. So like there's uh, that, that's how I try to structure it now to preserve myself. I'll, I'll pick certain days where I'm going to say, okay, these are going to be hard, harder round days and the other ones are going to be easy. But that's I find that for me that strategy going forward is going to be the only way I stay in the sport because if I do it the other way, there's just no fucking way. True. And, like, I, I tell some of the younger guys all the time that, like, you know, you're doing too much. Like, and it's, it's hard for them to see it because they will look at it as like a negative, like, yeah. okay. Cause they'll look at it and be like, am I doing enough? And they don't have the experience yet to have confidence in their training. Yeah. Right. So like I train every day with Bobby Poulter and the guy is like a unit machine and it's like, you're doing too much, man. You know what I mean? And like always say this to fighters when they're a couple weeks out from the fight is that like, listen to me, like you're well-prepared. There's a lot you can do between now and the fight. Uh, sorry, there's not much you can do between now and the fight to really get better, but there's a lot you can do to get worse. Yeah. Okay. Right. And just it's just you, that only comes with experience, right? And it's like you know I've been in this game for a long time now, and it's like I had I, I now have the confidence to know that like okay, I'm in shape. I don't have to worry about this. I, I my technique is sharp. I don't have to worry about this. I just got to go into the fight with my training, and whatever will be will be. But I, it's not like I, because you know how you're self-conscious earlier in your career, you're like, fuck, did I do enough? Am I in yeah. shape? Am I going to gas out? Am I going to be fast enough? And it's like, people are insecure about that. And you, you get to a point where you kind of understand your body a little bit more and you're like, yeah, no, this is good. I'm ready. Yeah. And uh, what I wanted to talk to you about, you mentioned it a little bit before, is your strength and conditioning kind of regime. Because, uh, you know, when you speak to some guys, like uh, some of them take it very seriously. Some of them don't take it very seriously. Uh, what's your stance on that and how important is it to you to, you know, for fighting and just for your general health in, in, in general? Um, I think that like for, from a strength and conditioning standpoint, you it should be something that can complement your game. I don't think that like, you know, some people are just physically able to do more than others, yeah. but you, you want to use your strength conditioning to be strong and conditioned, right? So like I like to run because I feel like it kind of like, helps me you know produce oxygen for myself later in the fight and there's a lot i know there's lots of research that says it doesn't and whatever but for me i feel like it does i feel like it helps my endurance and you also got to understand that i'm not particularly naturally a quick person i'm not particularly like a fast person or an explosive person yeah. so me having good endurance in a fight i think is going to be or has been key for me yeah. um i spent a lot of time earlier in my career doing sort of like circuit training and like MMA style strength conditioning where I wasn't getting stronger and I wasn't getting more conditioned. Yeah. So I feel like now if I, if I just focus on like, you know, raw strength in a way that literally helps me get stronger because I know that you, you're into strength training as well. And that, that stuff is extremely trainable. You yeah. can take a regular person and make them pretty fucking strong. Right. Yeah. And you can take a regular person and, you know, give them good endurance if they're willing to do the work. But there's not you're not everybody can be LeBron James. No. You, you know what I mean? Like there are ceilings for like intangibles, like speed and explosiveness. And well, it's genetics. It's simple genetics. Right. Yeah. So so I think that like. I, I enjoy lift. I really do enjoy lifting weights. And um, I, I think that it's really good for my body and it's good for injury prevention and um, doing it right is, is important, is important as well. How often and do you do it in a typical week? You think in camp twice a week, 
So I usually do like a full body push and a full body pull. Okay, and that and out of camp you do it uh, how often? Uh, I, I might do it every day, right? Like it just you know what I mean. But I'll put I'll put stuff that's like I want to do in there. Like I'll put like more uh, overhead presses in there. I'll put bicep curls in there. Yeah, you know what I mean. But like for in training camp, when it comes to strength and conditioning, like it's just meat and potatoes. Yeah, and do you how how do you like to lift? Is it like are you lifting heavy? Or are you doing things more of on a rep count base where you're doing it over a certain amount of reps for endurance kind of lifting? Uh, I probably I probably scheme like my strength conditioning the same way. And I get like, you know, I have coaches who, who help me out with this as well yeah. and uh, help with my programming. But it's mostly like, oh, starting off with mobility, a couple sets to like prime your muscles, the raw strength work. So like if I'm going to like have a – uh, a workout that's based around a deadlift variation of some kind. We're probably going to be working between like the three to six rep range on that. Yeah. And then everything else is to assist the muscle group that you're working. With. So if you're doing deadlifts, you know, the rest of your workout's going to be, you know, support supporting that with, you know, strengthening your glutes and your hamstrings and, and uh, you know, all of the muscle tissue surrounding that so that you can be strong so that you can have a strong base. Yeah. And talking to some other fighters, what I, what I, what I tend to gather from them is, some of them kind of gravitate away from the strength training because they, they say, you know, it makes me sore. So I'm mm. sore the next day and then I can't throw my kicks or I can't do – I don't have the same mobility to do the martial art and the skill work aspect after. Um, do you find that that's an issue for you or are you able to manage that by controlling like how much you're actually lifting so you don't get that feeling? Yeah, so like you, you need to do things in a way where just like we talked about earlier is that like return on investment on your training. like yeah. You can operate at 80% in your strength and conditioning and get stronger. You know what I mean? Like I don't need, there's not a ton, there's not going to be a ton of benefit for me in the short term to like hit one rep maxes on my deadlift while I'm six weeks at camp. It's yeah, not, or six, not, six weeks out from a fight. It's not, it's not going to benefit me. And um, I, I'm not going to see the strength gains that I need in that time anyway. Like it should be about maintenance. And I think, I know that like, again, it's super debatable, but like, I think the heavy lifting, and like that should be done away from your fight, but I just feel like I, you're, you know, you're using your muscles when you compete. You want to make sure that they're primed. You want to make sure that they're strong. Um, so yeah, and here's the thing too: is that there, there does come a time where like you need to keep that intensity high, and it's gonna, yeah, you're gonna be sore, but you're gonna be sore from lots of stuff anyway, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah. And um, you, you don't want to overdo it, and like think think about it as well. Like if you have the ability to deadlift 450 pounds, like does that mean that you should? No, not no. necessarily. Right? I, I, you, I don't think I've ever picked that. Like I, I physically can. I've done it before, but like. I work it. I kind of do this thing where I work at my body weight range, like mm -hmm. where I'm at, where my body weight is at currently. That is my maximum lifting for any. Like I've never fucking lifted that much bench press wise, right? Uh, but my my point being is like if I'm 190 pounds, for example, I'll work within that range that I'm pushing because the body weight of the person that I would be competing against is around that same body weight and i find when i operate in that kind of range that's when i don't get sore it's when i do more right yep. but but that's also like you said that's out of camp work like cycling that so when you're not fighting that's when you make those strength gains and you can afford to be sore the next day and take an extra yep. day off right and you might you might get a completely different response from somebody who's like 
their physicality is such a massive part of their game that they need to invest more in that. And that's like, because you know how it is, you know, you know how it is to train with guys that like aren't as skilled as you, but physically they're so good that it's like, it, they, they find a way to kind of balance it out. Yeah. And if that's you, you know, a lot more of your time is going to have to have to go there. Right. Yeah. Because like, I know how it feels to train with guys who aren't as skilled as me, but their physical ability finds a way to bridge that gap. Yeah. And now if you look at their training regimen, it, look, it might look completely different than mine, right? Well, I mean, that's the catch point too because sometimes you'll watch a guy's film and you'll be like, fuck, he doesn't look that good, right? And then when you actually get in there with him, you're like, oh, I get it now because you're, yeah. strong, you're strong as balls. So that, that technique that was off didn't look very fucking sharp or the yeah. way you were clinching didn't look very good. But you're strong as balls, so it, like you said, it bridges that gap. You're like, oh, shit, because that's happened to me where I've gotten in the cage before, and I'm like, okay, I'm not worried about this. I'm not worried yeah. about this aspect. And then, you know, we get into that position or that, that technique, and I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. It's because you're, you're strong as balls. You get away with this, right? Which there's nothing wrong with that because there's tons of guys who've made – really great careers off of having a lower skill level, but they're just physically – Yep. specimens i mean uh i'll take yoel romero as an example he's also incredibly skilled but he's gotten yeah. away with a lot of shitty striking technique based yeah. on the fact that he's a fucking animal yeah. <laughs> and, and poor defense everything man yeah. like yeah it's it's true he just he just makes it work and like you know conversely there's guys who are like physically nothing like physically like physically it's like well fuck you know this from jujitsu right like yeah. how many times have you rolled with a guy i like how that's 130 pounds and then just fucking folds you like yeah exactly that. They're, they're there it's happened, out there you know what happened, i mean happened to me not too long ago i roll yeah. with uh he's a little skinny asian guy black belt black button uh thing and black belt judo as well and i'm fucking rolling with him and i'm at first i'm putting the pressure doing my pressure and i'm like oh he's on my back boom yeah i'm like oh shit yeah. I'm being choked. <laughs> i'm being yeah. choked and when the match when we started rolling i'm like feel like you know when you're like oh i got this guy i got him yep like cuz he's not physically imposing at all nice looking guy no scratches on his face i'm like oh fuck <laughs> now i got my back taken but that's yep. that's part of the sport and that's why we do it right I have a distinct remember a memory from when I first started training, like probably my first couple of days. And I think about this all the time and how it affects people and how like it affects their approach to the sport. But I remember getting like, just, you know, I was like, before when I first started doing jujitsu, like I was, a, I was like a fit guy. I was strong. I was in good shape. Yeah. And I just remember like, okay, my first, my first few training sessions, like I had no idea what I was doing. It's a wash, whatever, but it's fun. And, 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 you know, and then, okay, I feel like, you know, you're getting a little bit of confidence. You're starting to grasp some technique. And I just remember like, like slapping hands with this guy who's just like. Lost you. Physically nothing. Like so, so much smaller than me and him just like running shit on me. And I remember sitting there after that round being like, I can. I can go two ways with this. Like I can either just figure out how he did that to the best of my ability or I fucking quit because yeah. this is hard for me to take. I, I had two of those experiences when I was, cause I started uh, training and fighting when I was in Windsor, I was training at, uh, with uh, Kyle Prepolek and those guys uh, over there. Right. And my first experience in jujitsu was, uh, I think I was training for about a month and then uh, we're doing some rolling and I, this, this, uh, this woman, she's a blue belt, right? And I'm like, okay, I got this shit. Because I, I just, I was playing football still. I'm like, fucking, I got this. I'm going to bully this chick. 
and within like 30 seconds she puts me in some fucking choke and i'm you know when you're like very fresh and you're like you don't want to tap because you're like your ego is still there and I'm, she's like the window yeah. is closing and i'm like fuck i gotta tap and then that was my i'm i'm taking the bus home and i'm like okay i just got tapped out by a 130 pound woman and this is no knock on women women can do that shit but it was like that was like okay I need to learn this shit. <laughs> this, this is that was my yeah, eye opener. Oh, I know. That was my eye opener moment for. And think, think about think about like since then. Think about since then how many people you've seen come into the gym in that exact scenario, and then you watch them kind of just like make that decision: Am I going to like stick this out yeah. and try to get good at this, or am I just going to quit right now? And a lot of them don't make it, especially no. when it's like. Like when, especially when the guys like are clearly hold a lot of stock in their like physical abilities, yeah. and then they realize that it's like okay, like it doesn't really matter as much as you think it does, right? And then it's just like see ya, you know, like they just their ego can't handle it, right? Yeah, well, I've seen that I, happen so I, many I, times. But conversely, I've seen I've seen guys go the other way and then become great grapplers. Yeah, and how many times have you not seen it where the person comes in for like the first three four months, like every fucking day, like I love this shit, I want to grapple, and then. I, I see them roll one day. They finally make the decision to, you know, I'm going to go with a higher level person, right? Because at first they were picking on other white belts to make themselves feel really good. And then yeah. one day decided to go to with like a purple and they get destroyed. And then yeah. I don't see them ever again. <laughs> it happens so many yeah, times, yeah. Oh, yeah. right? And I mean, even with the striking aspect too, I had that same experience where, I didn't have much striking experience, and I was at uh, M. They were they were calling Maximum Training Center at the time, but uh, I was at MTC, and one of the guys was getting ready for like a, a title amateur fucking fight, and he was a really great guy. And they're like, "Ashton, you want to spar?" I'm like, "I've never fucking sparred before, but sure, let's do it." And he fucked my shit up, right? Like you fucked me up. I went home yeah. that I went home that night, couldn't move. I had an exam the next day. Uh, we're me and my roommate were walking to the exam, and my leg was just giving out. Like I was literally like giving out on the pavement. <laughs> and he's like, "Dude, what the fuck's wrong with you?" I'm like, "I gotta learn this shit, bro." <laughs> I'm like, "I'm I yeah. gotta that's not happening again." He's like, "I don't think you should go back." I'm like, "I'm going back." I'm like, "I gotta learn this." I'm like, "Once this leg heals, <laughs> once this bruise is gone, I'm going back." And and I think that that's like you said that's the mindset you can see some people physically quit when they when they start they're like well this is not for me and that and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that but it's like the the male and the ego in general not just the male ego it's fun to like watch yourself develop over that time with martial arts you know what I mean yeah it's funny you say that though because think about like. I find this and tell me if you feel this or if, tell me if you notice the same thing that like, if you start taking like a, like a, a fit guy, say you're teaching him boxing, for example, yeah. I always get more progress because with like women from day one than I do with like those type of guys, because the women will like literally like not think like not have an ego. They'll focus on the technique and they just get so much more out of their training sessions where like, it's hard to get the guys not to just hit hard for the sake of hitting hard. And it like hurts them going forward. Right. Because sometimes like, like I'll, I'll be training with a woman for like, you know, two or three months and I'm just like blown away at how good you're getting and yeah. how like, um, if, 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 you know, the, the man that I'm talking about kind of looked at it the same way as you did, he would, he could be like 
so much better. You know what I mean? But he can't just not try to like murder every punch. Exactly. You know? No, you, I it's think so you're hundred percent right. Cause I work with, I work with both diverse, you know, both males like that, but I find that the females are more accepting to instruction. Whereas yep. the, the males, I'll tell them that and they, and they hear it cause they're there to train and learn obviously. But the female, I'll be like, slow it down, you know, turn that. And these are like things that took me like 10 years to even like process yeah. in my brain. And like you said, I'm, after like three or four months, I'm like, damn, like this banker is turning over their hips better than I turn over. It took me 10 years and yeah, it that's... only took three minutes for her to like, and, but it, it is like what you said. And I also think it's a genetic thing. I think that females in like, especially like martial arts, so like the biggest part of martial arts is how to learning how to use your hips. Yep. Right. And when genetically the female hip is stronger more agile, more flexible, just because of their ability to give birth. It's just genetic, right? And I mm -hmm. think that when women slow those movements down, they are actually more uh, biomechanically sound than men will ever be. And yeah, I get that. And, and, I, and I think that's why the evolution of women's MMA is faster than men. Uh, yeah. if, if someone actually did a study, which I don't think they do because it's not worth putting in the money to do it but if someone actually did a study and uh, seen that the athletic development of men over the history of martial arts compared to women i think you would see that women progress a lot faster one because they're a little bit more open to instruction but two because well, think about all aspects of martial arts wrestling jiu-jitsu muay thai how many yeah. times are you saying turn your hips use your hips yeah. shrimp yeah. turn your hip you know what i mean uh wrestling you know don't turn your hips so they're not square so you, you when you're you know you're sprawling on a shot and i think that women have that ability whereas men they have that ability but it takes them a little bit longer to kind of chime into it and nobody's going to do that study because it's not worth doing but i bet you if they did that study you would find that women will progress a lot faster yeah it passes the eye test for sure you know yeah. what i mean um you know if you yeah if you look how far you know women's mma has come well, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really doesn't feel like that long ago where it was like, um, Ronda Rousey was just beasting on everybody, but I do say this to people all the time and this is changing. So like when I say it now, this is something that I used to say three years ago where I feel like it was a lot more true, but like the skill gap in like, if you take like the busy men's divisions, like featherweight or lightweight or something like that, the skill gap between the number one guy. And the number 50 guy is like razor thin. Like if they fought each other 10 times, you know, it can be a crapshoot and people don't realize how close it is. Yeah. But if you take like the number three and the number four woman in like the strawweight division, it's an insurmountable chasm of skill. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that is changing, but that's like what I used to say. That's like, that's the biggest comparison I used to say to how competitive women's MMA was compared to men's MMA is that you take like the number one and the number 90 guy and it's like, they're they're so close and then you take like a championship contender in the bantamweight division and then the number eight girl and it's like the number eight girl will never have a chance no matter what and that is changing but that's like how that you know up until recently that's kind of how he, how it was honestly yeah i mean there there have been fights in the ufc and in other organizations but more specifically in the ufc where i've seen some of these women fight and i'm like how in the fuck did you get there? And I'm not putting them down. It's just yeah. that's just the nature of the the women's divisions. But I was just like, 
you don't look very skilled at martial arts at all. How the fuck did you get there? And like you said, it was, the, and I think that gap is closing and it's closing very fast. I think like a lot of younger girls are getting more involved in the sport and just the technique in general has been getting better. And for uh, on the credit to women's sport, they're, they're taking it, the women are finally being able to see this as a viable career path, right? Yeah. Or, and so when that happens, they obviously take it more seriously and invest more time and energy into their training and into their the lifestyle uh, of training and, and getting better. So I think that I think in over over time, give it another five six years, you will see that the women's divisions might even not not physically in terms of strength, but supersede some of the men's divisions in terms of skill set. True. Right? Well, look, look at like every time Valentina Shevchenko fights, it's like you're looking at somebody that's not on a level. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and that's the thing is that if you took like Valentina Shevchenko and like were, were gave her like male physical attributes, yeah. forget about it. But like you, you watch her fight, and it's like the number two girl, the number three girl, the number four girl, the number ten girl. Like it doesn't really matter. They're not they're not having competitive fights. You know what I mean? Uh uh, st- speak, speaking of Shevchenko, what do you think of this nonsensical um, women competitor, uh, the transgender competing into the sport? Do you think that we're going to have to deal with that in the sport of MMA? Well, it happened in MMA before it happened in any other sport, right? Yeah. So I will say this, is that like, it's fucked. It's completely fucked in any sport. Yeah. You know what I mean? It shouldn't happen. But the reason, here's one thing that people don't consider. Uh, um, that in MMA, in order for a woman to compete against, or like so, like a transgender woman to compete against a biological woman, it has to go through several layers of approval. The athletic commissioner has to agree to it, yeah, and then the opponent has to agree to it, right? So it's like there's no nobody's getting hoodwinked here. You know what I mean? Like there are a couple levels of like this, things have to happen in agreement, and like I'm not saying that it's fair. But it went through a process of approval, whereas like if you're a college athlete, for example, or you're an Olympic, an Olympic level weightlifter. Yeah. Right. Nobody's asking your opinion. You're not getting any choice on this. And that is not fair. Yeah, exactly. And I like the way you put that, because I don't think a lot of people see that. Or if a woman, a biological woman accepts that risk, Mm -hmm. I, I think that's that, that that's fair. The, the person is consenting and saying, yes, I will compete. And I do know a lot of female fighters who say, fuck it, I'll do it. Well, uh, you know what I mean? Just out of their competitive nature, they want, like they train with men all the time. So they're like, fuck it. I'll, I'll fight. I'll fight a, a transgender athlete. But now you're, that's, that's a fight. You know what I mean? Now we're talking about like, for example, the, the swimmer uh, woman, slash male uh, Leah Thomas or whatever it was like try to justify that she was like 200th when she was competing as a man mm-hmm. and first competing as a woman like that doesn't the, she didn't get better swimmer within a year like she didn't no. become a world a champion NCAA swimmer within a year it was simply because of physical attributes and I don't think and like you said that the other women weren't consented on that they weren't asked if that was what they wanted it was just like here too bad so sad this is now part of the sport 
Yep. And to have everything that you've worked for as an athlete, especially as a woman, because I feel like you've got to do more as a woman to kind of earn respect in sport, yeah. to have that shut down. And just, you know, even if you're not, even if you're like not going to come in first in that race, it's such like a distraction. It's such like, uh, it, it doesn't, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's just completely unnecessary. And it's like, what, why, 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 why? make things unfair for so many people and polarize this so much when it's like the, the solution is just to not have it happen at all. Yeah, you know what I mean? And it, that doesn't mean that it's, that doesn't mean that it's not fair. It doesn't mean that it's not inclusive. Yeah, exactly. You know, it doesn't, that doesn't mean that. Um, and like, that's the thing too, is that well, Fallon Fox, the transgendered fighter, she lost to Ashley Evan Smith and Ashley Evan Smith went on to have a UFC career. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, again, imagine, like, imagine how sadistic this would be if you got into a cage, you're a woman and you look at the woman across from the cage from you and you're like, huh, looks a little strange. Like this girl's kind of jacked. Like this yeah. is weird. And then you go and get TKO'd in the first round. And then, you know, you read a story on MMA junkie the next day saying that like, Oh, Fallon Fox, pro you know first transgender fighter and you're like what? what and there's nobody had mentioned it to you yeah and you're like well you can't you can't bring it up because it's it's um it's a violation of this person's rights yeah. right and you would be like wait a minute i might just have potential brain damage nobody told me nobody even asked my opinion exactly like what the fuck is this right that that would be fucking crazy so people do ask my opinion how it like pertains to MMA. And I always tell them like, I'm way, I have a way better or a way easier time dealing with an MMA because it has to, you have to agree to fight. Nobody can yeah. make you do that. No, yeah, right. Exactly. In college sports, that's like, especially with the swimmer who's like making headlines now, nobody's got a choice. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Everybody knows that she shouldn't be there, but nobody can say anything. The, 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 the people on staff at her school, the people that work for NCAA, their jobs are on the line. They can't yeah. say anything because they're gonna, they'll literally get fired. Yeah, you know what I mean? And it's just like a, a culture that's been created to make it impossible to have a rational conversation with anybody about it. Well, and, and to, to kind of sum this whole kind of situation up, I think that the thing to take away is that it's, it's actually – if you're fighting for equality and for especially for women and for women to have the same opportunity like you're literally detracting from that same fight that they were fighting for for like the last 20 30 years to be recognized the same as sports to to get paid the same amount as men in leagues now you're allowing that kind of transition to happen everything that they fought for for the last 20 years to, to receive that notoriety, to be able to be viewed as, as elite athletes along with the men athletes, yep. it, it's being kind of ripped away from women. And it, it kind of, as, as a dad of a young girl coming up, like there's no way in fucking hell I would even like, if I wouldn't let that happen. Like if she was happened to go to a tournament when she was 16, 17 and there's, there's a dude there wanting to compete against her because he decided that, you know, last year he wanted to switch, which is his personal decision. I don't give a shit. That's another discussion. But I'm going to tell her no. I, yeah. I'm going to say don't do it. And even if she's competitive and wants it, like, Dad, just let me do this. I'm like, no, because there's no win for you as a, as a female. There's no yeah. win. 
you, you win and they're going to make an excuse. You lose and you got beat by a dude. What, and at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter what sport you're in. You know, you can, there's physical consequences too, right? You, you, you could get hurt, right? You can, if, if it's a contact sport, you can get hurt. If there's, you know, it's just a discussion we shouldn't be having, but apparently, unfortunately we do have it. And it, and I feel like it's going to set women's sport back, you know, a few years, especially amateur women's sport professional. I don't think it's going to creep too far into it, but amateur women, the women who are, like you said, in the NCAA, uh, it's got like imagine you you're a little girl dreaming of winning and then all of a sudden it's just stripped away from you because some some dude decides he wants to compete against you and yep. and, and you know what so another part that's unfair is that even if like you're a college swimmer and you do win the race that this um this woman is in the entire narrative around the sport now is about her self image. It's yeah. not about the sport itself. No. It's not fair. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, moving on from that depressing fucking shit. <laughs> uh, have you, uh, like you said, you were saying earlier, you're 34. I, you, you still got tons of fight left in you, uh, tons of scale. But have you given any thoughts to, you know, what life is going to be like after fighting? Have you kind of worked that kind of out with your, in, in your head yet? Yeah, like I think that like I'm gonna stay. I like I have like a like a, a coaching business right now that I really enjoy, and um, it, it it's really good for my career. But it's also my lifestyle, right? So I have the ability, just like you, to make my own schedule to work around my training, and like I think I'm in a really good position where I have a lot of control over my life. And um, I have the ability to do the things that I want to do. And through MMA, I feel like I can apply that to most other things. So yeah, maybe, maybe when I'm done fighting, I expand my business. Maybe I open a gym, um, but I will have the time to like explore their options when that time comes. But I mean, for the time being, um, I'm, I'm pretty happy right now, but I just, I, I would assume that like, you know, I've invested so much already into this that like, I, I enjoy what I'm doing. Okay. Obviously like it's like life's natural progression to want to like expand that a little bit more. So I, yeah. when the time comes, I, I will. Right. And like, there, there is definitely something just inside of me that like wants to, you know, do, do other things and explore other things, but it's not necessarily on a professional level. Like there's lots of things in my personal life that I want to do, like, um, that would be nice to have a little bit more time to explore, Yeah, but it, it could be worse. You know what I mean? I think I'm in a really good position where, um, you know, I really enjoy what I do as my day job. And that sort of like gives me the ability to have a professional career. Whereas if I was like working a nine to five or working in an office, I, I can't really make sense of how that would be an option for me. So yeah. um, I think that like, you know, when I'm done fighting and I've got kids, I, I'm going to be in a position where I can make my own time, you know, make good money, you know, spend time with my family and explore the other things in life that like, you know, are enriching to me. And I think that's really important because that's what I'm doing now. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I actually can, can make time to do the things in life that I want to do. Now, I know you, you love playing golf as well. Is that like something that you want to like, you know, like I, I, I think a lot of fighters and athletes in general, like when they're so obsessed and honed in on their craft and they they lose out on doing other recreational kind of things that almost complement fighting. Like you find mm -hmm. like when you're out playing golf and, and working on your swing, it's something that's like mentally freeing and it allows you to be able to go back into the gym 
and and not be stressed out about fighting and not be stressed out about your career because you have those other outlets to kind of physically kind of work on things? Yeah. So this is like only my, I'm going into my third season golfing. Like I had played a little bit like here and there before, but like I didn't even own a set of clubs or anything like that. And the reason that I wanted to do something else was because um, I, I felt like, training all day and then coaching and being surrounded by all the time, all the time. Like I was getting to the point where like, I didn't want to go home on Saturday night and watch fights. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to think about it. And I felt like I needed a hobby that was something else. So when I got into golf, like it's golf is an extremely difficult game. It's extremely yeah. hard. It's extremely frustrating. And, uh, but now I'm like completely obsessed. I love it. I'm God awful at it, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's just really fun for me. And it, there is something really nice. And I feel this way about training too. Like when I'm on the mats, like I don't have my phone with me. I don't think about anything else. It's really, it's like a good like release. You know what I mean? Like yeah. to just focus on something else. And I feel that same way when I'm on the golf course. And I think that it kind of gives me a break from thinking about it. It puts me into like a, a different world where it's not like completely my identity. And it's like, it gives me the opportunity to kind of, reset a little bit and like um you know it be more it is human, time consuming right? but it's yeah. like it's it's one of those things where it's like you know I, I needed something else to put some of my time and it's a little bit easier on my body as well you know what i mean yeah. so it's not like if i was going to do rock climbing or something like that it would just be another stressor on my body or you know what i mean so yeah I don't, well do you find that you kind of on some of the days where you're a little worn out you're like let me just go play golf get a little teeny movement in and then that then the next day you're actually like really good to get back in the gym and train hard do you find that you kind of use it for that kind of purpose yeah, yeah 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 and like even you know if i got like a you know like a couple hour break in my day i'll go and hit like a bucket of balls and just kind of you know, I just, yeah, it's just something that you enjoy. And I think like, I think in life, it's important to kind of make time for that type of stuff. I think it's yeah. really, actually. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's nice that you said it. Cause I, I've done that too. Like, like you were saying is like, I was so obsessed with MMA for the longest time and I'll watch fights every week. And, and I almost find myself now, like I'm so obsessed with other hobbies. Huh. Uh, I don't watch, <laughs> I don't watch fights. Yeah. Now. People will be like, yo, you see that fight? I'm like, ah. Uh, no, I saw the highlight, but I didn't. Yeah. I didn't watch because, like, I like some people know I'm obsessed with fucking Lego. So, I was, like, the last pay per view, everyone was watching the pay per view, and I was like, I'm gonna turn that pay per view on. But then I started doing like, I like, I took my CBD oil, I got a little high, and I'm doing fucking Lego. I'm like, oh shit, it's twelve <laughs> o'clock, the fights are done. And That's I funny. I found the same thing happened with um, archery. I always thought about doing it, and I'm like, one day I like, I just I'm like, fuck it, let me go spend the money and buy a bow. And then, and uh, I find like on days where I'm like, you know, when you have those conflicting days where you're like, you're, you're a little fucking tired, you maybe didn't get good sleep, huh. but you're like, you had this plan to train twice, but you're like, fuck, that's, that might not happen. And I find like, okay, I'll go out, I'll shoot my bow, because it is physically demanding drawing the, the draw weight back and yep. a little sweat on. And I actually feel like the next day, I'm way more prepared to train hard. Whereas if I had forced myself to kind of, going to the gym that day and exhaust myself the night I wouldn't have made, I barely would have made that practice happen. And mentally it's, it's, you know, de-stressing. You know what I mean? It's another yeah. skill. It's another skill set. that's not as physically demanding as the sport that you have. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, um, 
the uh, the author of the Book of Five Rings says that if you want to master martial arts, you have to have mastery in all things in life. Yeah. And so there you go. you're never going to get there, but it is like, it's a concept that means if you, you know, if you want to get good at one thing, you have to try to be good at everything. Yeah. Right. Everything that you do in life. And I think that like, that's the only way that you, according to this guy who's like, clearly fucking knows what he's talking about. It's how you get good at one thing is to be and, good at everything. And there, there's some translatable things and other things. So I, I'll give this example because it, it might not apply to everybody's hobby going back into fighting, but I'll give this example because it works for me is. Something that I struggle with, with my striking and even with my jiu-jitsu is like when an opportunity is there, I don't pull the trigger right away, right? Like I, I'll see it and then I'll be like, like 10 seconds later, I'm like, fuck, it was there, right? And what I was noticing is when I'm, when I do archery and you pull that bow back, you can sit there with the fucking bow and try to aim in at the target all you want, but the longer you sit there, you're going to miss, right? You let go and you're going to miss, right? Because your body gets tired and you're no longer... And one of the things I've kind of learned is like, as soon as it's in the site, as soon as I see the target in sight, boom, I let it go. And it, yeah. it's helping me translate my game. So when I'm in the gym and I see, okay, there it is, boom, just let it go. Because so I see like doing other kind of less intense physical activity, skill, skill based uh, sport or recreational thing can actually help a fighter or yeah. help an athlete uh, build some of those. Very, very minute um, mental skills and even physical skills to like react. It's almost like a reaction time kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I um, I read a book recently called Golf Is Not a Game of Perfect, and it's written by like um, a PGA Tour pro coach who focuses on like the mental game. Yeah. And the things that he talks about as it applies to golf apply to like a lot. Like his philosophy that he uses apply to the mental approach to most, most sports, but also things in life where like, um, if your mental ability isn't clear, you can't physically command something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the thing too, is that like, okay, you know, from fighting, you miss most of these opportunities. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like in combat, you miss more than you land. You look at like the best boxers ever, the Manny Pacquiao's, they only land at a 30% clip. You know what I mean? Everybody knows how it feels to like practice a technique over and over and over and over and then see it in sparring, see it in competition and it's gone. The moment is fleeting, right? So you just got to do your best to kind of put your best foot forward and then let it happen. Yeah. You know what I mean, if you're in competition and you're thinking about what am I doing with my jab? Is this open? Is this here? You're going to miss every opportunity because you're not present. Right. And I yeah. think that, I think that philosophy applies to a lot of things. It's I, actually, I really recommend that book to people um, who also give instruction to other people, because I think that like, um, there was a lot of things that were in that book that I could apply to my own life, my own job and my own training as well. Yeah. Well, I think the, the one thing you touched on there that I think is really important is being present, right? Cause I think for a lot of fighters, I, I did this, I'm guilty of this and I've only kind of corrected this, uh, after this last surgery that I've had is where I would wake up in the morning and I would think about the end of the day instead of the things I have to do prior to it you know what i mean so mm -hmm. like if i have if I, I was scheduled to train twice or if i i'd be like oh i'm gonna feel like shit after training today because i'm a little tired or i have yeah. to do all these kind of things and i think that that gets translated into the game because you you know when the match starts 
when the fight starts or any other sport starts, you have to be 100% present in that moment to really bring out the best of your skill set and the best of your, your, your time and energy in general. And I think that, like, like you said, <clears throat> learning to kind of just be present in the moment is extremely hard for MMA athletes because you're always thinking about the consequences of your actions, right? True. If I do this, what's he going to do? Well, yeah. who, who the fuck cares what he's going to do, right? But we always get caught into that trap because it's the nature of the sport. You're, you're always afraid of the violence that can happen back to you, right? Sure. But, if, but if you're only honing in on the violence that you can apply, well, the rest of it will come back because you do practice your defense. That's part of yep. the sport. But yep. I think that a lot of younger fighters get caught, lost in that, you know, they're not 100% present in their rounds or in their fights. Because they're always thinking about, you know, what if 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 I throw this jab, he tends to take down. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, fuck it, he didn't do it yet, <laughs> right? Like, throw your yeah. jab, and if he shoots, then you 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 know this. So just deal yeah. with the consequences after, right? You you ever uh, teach jiu-jitsu? Yeah, a lot. So so do you ever do you ever have a student be like give you the what ifs, and it's like what if this, what if that, and it's like yeah, those are all options, but that's not what we're talking about, right? Exactly. If we just play the what if game, we're going to be here all day because combat sports is not, there's not one thing that you do that's better than everything else. It's chess. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so if, if we're, if I'm going to answer this one question, what if, okay, well then now I've got to answer a hundred because there's a million things that's going to happen. And chances are this technique is not going to work. Like you have to give yourself options. So this fails, I go here, this fails, I go here. You know what I mean? So like, don't put so much stock. You know what I mean? And like, I'm not going to answer your what if, because if I do it once, I've got to do it a thousand times. You know what I mean? That's that's not happening. So we're not going to talk about it. It's the most frustrating part, especially when I'm participating in class. Right. Um, And I'm going to call teachers out, instructors out on this because they'll ask, oh, does anyone have any questions? And someone will ask a question like three steps down the road. Like, I'm like, focus on the what i just taught like we 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 know that that things will happen there will be reactions to for every action is a reaction right that's that's a simple saying but i think that like you said being present in the current technique if you you, if we're working on a current technique just work on the current technique the what ifs can happen after right and i think that and it it pisses me off because a lot of instructors will keep answering the what ifs and then you're sitting there for like 10 minutes of instruction and i'm like in terms of like if anyone's done any studying we know that instruction should be very minimal like just like a fight right yeah. you get you, you only get 30 seconds of instruction really yeah right instruction should be very minimal and application should be high and yeah. the the learning happens during the application right whereas the question that the person asked will be addressed once they start doing it they're like, yeah. oh, if I, if I turn my hip this way, then that's not available. Whereas I think a lot of jujitsu and grappling instructors, they fall into that trap where they, does anyone have any questions? And then people put, uh, but uh, uh, then you're yeah. telling, you're going through seven different scenarios in ten minutes. Yeah. People are sitting around, they're getting cold. That's where injuries happen too. But that's the But you. The actual technique that you were describing has now gone into 17 different fucking things. And yeah. how, much, how much do you really think that person is going to learn now, right? Yeah. 
And I, it's really frustrating when I'm sitting there because I'm, I'm just like, fuck it, shut up. Let's fucking work on the thing. Yeah. You, the question will be answered once you start working on the thing. Right? Sure, yeah. And uh, it, it's really frustrating. I, and I hope it changes over time, but I think it's more of a recreational student thing. Uh, I, I don't see pros doing that a lot, but uh, yeah. Yeah, but like there, 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 there is an answer to that question, but like that's not what we're talking about right now. So we're not going to worry about it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Because if we, if we, if we, if we go down that rabbit hole, like, like you said, we're going to cool down. We're going to be here for an hour. Yeah, you know what I mean. Then, so let's just then, work on the thing. Exactly. The last thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about because you are you're such a seasoned vet in the sport uh, is fighter pay. Right. It's always been kind of a controversial kind of topic. Um, now. In my opinion, I do think fighters should get paid a lot more, but there are economical kind of things that go along with that. What do, what's your thought on how fighters are currently being paid at, at any level, not just the UFC? Um, well, I mean, at a lower level, like I don't think that like there's a lot of money to be made anyway. Like I think that if you go to a local show and they they manage to get two thousand people in there, that's not easy. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not, it's not easy to get people to show up. It's not easy to separate people from their money to buy tickets and stuff like that. Um, uh, and like from somebody who's like, I've, 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 tr- I've competed all over the world, yeah. but I've also competed close to where I am. So like, for example, if I can sell a lot of tickets, I still, and I'm getting 10% of that. Like I might what make an extra thousand dollars or $1,500 or something like that. Um, I think that there needs to be a part, I think that the fighters should care more about what they're getting paid. I think that if you feel that you're worth something, you should go and get it. And, um, I feel like you should have education to understand that like a promoter is not going to like look out for you. You know what I mean? They're not going to like make sure that you're taking care of at any capacity, right? Like, even if you look at like, um the ufc where they're getting such a small market share for pay and like the ufc does this thing where they try to like make themselves a mainstream sport like the nfl or the nhl and it's like you're not that you're prize fighting right yeah yeah, i think as a fighter it's important to know your worth and then adjust your your sort of expectations based on that yeah. There are a lot of guys who want money that they don't deserve, but there are a lot of guys that are getting paid way, way less than they uh, are getting. And I think that for somebody like me, who's a regional fighter, you've got to be creative about where you're going to get your revenue from. So like, you know, sponsors and stuff like that, the sponsor market is really fickle. You're not going to get somebody who's going to give you 10 grand. Like, yeah. that, that, you know, sure. I think it's important as a young fighter to like build relationships with brands that are going to be around that are going to look out for you. Because if say I get a banner and like, here's the thing too, is that like how much, how much, how valuable is like a spot on your banner worth to a company? Not much. Nothing. Right. So if they give you, if you can manage to get $500, right. That's pretty good. They're doing you a favor. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if you can sell it to a company that like you get to be involved with my brand and I can do things with you, like some of the companies that really stick by me, I will do like, you know, photo shoots for them, product release, like meet and greets and stuff like that. And like have a relationship that I can build with them over time. And those are always the companies that, that, that take care, take care of me the most. Obviously there's companies that jump on board when there's like a lot of attention on me. Yeah. 
And that's great. But if I have a banner and like advertising on my shorts, where like, I'm only going to get a hundred bucks from eight different places. It's not even worth my time to like pick up the phone, talk to you, go get this printed, go do this, go do that. By the time um, that's done, it's like, I've okay, well, great. I spent fucking eight hours doing this shit. Like, is it, is it really worth it now? And I could have been like putting that time somewhere else. Not, not really. So I think that like, aligning yourself with brands that want to build you up and want to be involved in your career long-term. And that that's why you see a lot of fighters that are involved with like gear companies and supplement companies, because they're going to be a big part of your life moving forward. Right. Yeah. Um, services that are really available to you that are, that are unique to you as a fighter that you're going to need are, are key as well. And then obviously, and I'm not talking about like George St. Pierre who can get like an under armor endorsement deal with millions of dollars. Cause that's not in the cards for almost every fighter. No, yeah, exactly. You that, know what that, I mean? Those are very, uh, like you said, fickle opportunities. Those are yeah. far, few and far between, right? And listen, like I get offers from promoters that I say no to because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight for that little. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I've gotten, I've got, I've got offers to fight like Shane Campbell for two thousand dollars. Yeah, no, like fuck I, that. I'm not going to do that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I'm just not going to do that. And the quality of your competition, so you should be compensated for that. If you're fighting a guy who's 10 and one, and it's going to be a, a high level fight, you deserve high level pay. Yeah, exactly. You know I mean, if you listen, if, if, if I'm going to listen, if you, if you want to run, run me out there with a guy who's three and seven, where I can just go out there and get a win and you want to pay me 1500 bucks. Yeah. Now we're talking. Yeah. You want to do that. That's fine. I get, I get that. I get where you're coming from. And now on the higher end, places like one FC and Bellator might actually pay you a little bit more because their talent pool is smaller. Whereas the UFC, for example, they, you are completely expendable to them. Right. Well, the, so like if the you market don't, is saturated the market, like yeah, in terms of, don't, yeah. you don't really have a lot of bargaining power because if you want to be in the UFC, which is like, okay, you might not even be getting paid the best, but yep. the potential to get paid there That's is there. But one thing you've got to understand as a as a as a fighter is that you can't pay your credit card bill with potential. Yeah. You can't pay your credit card bill with exposure, right? That's important to know, and it's important to know your value. And listen, it's important to know your value, even if your value isn't even that high, yeah. right? But the, I know lots of fighters where it's like I look at this guy, and this guy's a fucking killer he's gonna start like he's gonna he's gonna be great he should be having people looking out for his financial interests because yeah. i i just have a feeling that they're gonna be there and he can actually make like a career out of it where he is like you know so have i made a, a fucking shitload of money in my mma career no but i bought a house you know what i mean like i i make enough money now where it's like it's having an impact on my finances and it, it opens doors for me to do other things yeah. in my right. life. But like, you know what I mean? Am I going to make ever a hundred thousand dollars in my, in my career? You know, probably not from one fight, honestly. And you got to be honest with yourself. Yeah. Right. Um, but the UFC does this thing where it's like, they, they get people into these contracts. Like if you look at like Patty Pimblett, for example, you made like 10 G's, right? Yeah. And Patty Pimblett, like if you look back on his career, he's gone through it, man. He's had really tough fights in Europe. Like yeah. he is a, he is not a prospect. He is a full blown veteran. Like, and he's a, he can fight his fucking ass off. Legit, right. legitimate fighter, not, not an up and comer at all. Right. So, nope. yeah. And, um, when you watch him, there's a magnitude to it. Like there's something about him that draws you in. It makes you want to watch him fight. It makes you want to see him lose and it makes you want to see how he's going to react in, uh, 
you know, turmoil and stuff like that. And like, I don't think it's doing anything good for him where the UFC are, are like giving him his easy fights. Cause I don't think that he wants that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that he should be competent. I think you should run it out there. You should, you should put him out there against top 10 guys because I think that he's available to do it and fucking pay the guy. Yeah. Another problem is that like, um, contender series is that when you sign a contract for contender series, if they decide to take you, your first four fights are locked into that contract, right? So you have no negotiating power if they decide to take you, yeah. right? And that's the thing is that maybe you're, maybe you get into contender series when you're four and one and get a finish. And this is great. You're off to the races now with the UFC contract, yeah. but there's lots of guys who are winning on contender series that like 12 and five contenders. Yeah, they're, 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 they're established fighters and they might even be taking a step back just yeah exactly. in doing so. You know what I mean? So it's just, and that's another thing too, is that, I don't know if like you listened to the Jake Shields podcast when he was on Rogan last time, but he talked about how much money he was making from like fighting on organ he on organizations outside. Like he fought in his last fight in Strike Force. Um, I don't think it was Dan Henderson, but he said he got paid more for his last fight in Strike Force than he did to fight George St. Pierre for a title in Toronto in front of sixty thousand people. That's, like make sense of that, and that's yeah. not. That's not fair. And he said the reason that he was interested in it is because of the sh the hype that you get from the UFC could lead to other things, right? But it's like that didn't do anything for him in the short term. Obviously, he went on to have like a continued success and whatever. Yeah. But um, that's kind of like to be in a main event like that and like take a pay cut is, is kind of like you can't tell me that the money's not there to pay him yeah. when it's like no, they're a publicly traded company. They're fucking, yeah. they got the money. And and I think one of the things that opened my eyes to kind of fight or pay was I, I fought for King of the Cage. And then, you know, they do, the, you, like you said, the percentage of ticket sales, right? Yeah. So, so I, fought, I put in all this effort for selling fucking tickets because I'm like, oh, I'll get some money. And I go up to the promoter, I hand him all the cash. He just fucking shovels out and he hands it to me. And he, that was it. And I'm like, I just put in a lot of fucking effort and work into selling these fucking tickets for you. And it wasn't, there wasn't even a thank you. There wasn't even like it was. So that was when my eyes kind of opened. Cause after the fight, I'm like, why did I invest so much time into something for so little? Right. Cause as, as fighters, you get obsessed with like these percentages that they throw out with you. And then yeah. I, th I think that one of the, th one of my best advice for, for up and coming fighters, for young guys in their twenties that are just kind of, is like learn how to invest early, like not just in the stock market or nothing, just learn how to invest. And then you'll understand your worth to these, to these guys. So you have the leverage to say no, right? Because yeah. if you're going to be putting in, say you're, on, you're in fight week and you're putting in like four or five hours of that week to like gather money and go deliver tickets or whatever. Yeah, it's a job. It's a job. You should be paid as a job, not 10%, right? Because when you do the math, that's like not that much, right? Awesome. So, and I, and I think the problem is, is a lot of young guys don't understand percentages and investing and, and what money is really worth. Like you said, creating yourself as a brand and saying, here, this is what I'm worth, right? And I think that when you have younger guys on regional shows, while you might not have that much leverage, but if... Like say a promoter wants to pay you five hundred bucks to to fight a guy who's four and all, which is which does happen, right? Yeah. You 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 can be like, no, give me 
more, right? And I think when that happens more, when guys understand their value more, instead of just saying, I'll do whatever, I just, because like you said, the UFC gives them the promise of making money, right? But I think that one of the problems with young fighters and fighters in general is they're so obsessed with this, if I win, I get more. Listen. Fuck that. Uh, you can't you can't pay your credit card bill with fucking uh, t-shirts yeah. and protein bars, buddy. You exactly. can't pay your you can you can't pay your mortgage with uh, potential, dude. Yeah, and, and I think that's the the if I was to take one thing out of our discussion and one thing out of um, fighter pay in general, I think that the win bonus is fucking stupid because yeah. what what fighter goes out there wanting to lose? No, none of them, yeah. right? Nobody goes out there like so. You're the that win bonus should technically be a part of the purse. Right. Yeah. And I think and I think the part that where fighters get dragged into these contracts or dragged into these they they just don't understand money and percentages. Right. And, and sorry, go ahead. I've had conversations with promoters relatively recently where it's like I'll try to negotiate a flat rate and they'll say, like, you know, we don't do that. And you ask them like, Well, why not? Yeah. And it's like, Well, that's just not the way it's done. And it's like, Well, why not? Like what's gonna happen if you do that? You know what I mean? It's just that that is just like an industry standard, like that's arbitrary that you're going by. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you think like you know nobody fights harder? You know nobody's going into that last two minutes being like thinking about the money. Obviously, everybody wants to win. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? But it's like it's it's not as valuable as you think it is. And another thing too is that I've had conversations relatively recently with promoters where it's like, okay, you can't give me what I want for my purse. How about and like this is the thing is that sometimes you gotta get creative and like yeah promoters should be receptive to negotiation and like how about you give me 25 percent of ticket sales instead of the, the 10 and they're like well we don't do that it's like well why not yeah you know what i mean so if you if you don't do that and i just don't take this fight how are you going to replace those ticket sales and yes you're going to do some but not all and i'm putting you in a position where you can pay me less for purse and then not take a loss because i'm only going to take I, this, this is me like banking on myself yeah you know what i mean because yeah. i know i'll sell those tickets yeah you know what I mean? So just give me more of that money and we'll call it even. If I fucking, you know, wake up in the morning and I don't want to do it, it only negatively affects me. If yeah. you're so confident that you're going to sell those tickets. Exactly. And, and not because you need me. <laughs> exactly. The, the other thing too is like when you like, let's pick a simple number. Say they pay a thousand to show a thousand to win, right? Why is me winning dependent on that figure? Right, and, yeah. and I always come back to it because the the outcome shouldn't matter in terms of a fighter pay, right? Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's bonus like promotion, certain promotions do bonuses and stuff. And I think that when people are negotiating their contracts for a fight, it, like I think a win bonus should be scrapped completely. I think that if you determine that I'm worth a thousand after I win, why wasn't I worth a thousand before, right? Yeah. Right, that, that that's my 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 view on it. Because either way, you're gonna have to pay me a thousand. I'm gonna fucking win the fight. Like, but so so my worth that should be a guarantee. And I think that fighters yeah. should stop fucking around with the win bonus and like, hey, if I win, give me more. No, how about you fucking make it a standard? Give me this is my pay. If you if yeah. I if I win, so be it. But this is what I pay. And, and like you said, the, the the ticket sales, I would be completely great. Like. If if it's a thousand to win, a thousand to show, give me two thousand, and you can keep all the fucking ticket sales. I'll still yeah. I'll still sell tickets. Yeah. You keep all the fucking tickets sales. And I think that fighters need to know that they need 
to secure their finances because how often do we see a lot of guys take fights they shouldn't fight because they need money, right? And I think that part of that problem is because they're so – they don't understand numbers and figures and and what their actual worth is. They just agree to things because of the – like you said, the promise of making money, the promise of all this kind of things. And it it sets guys back and it's why – and I think that's the reason why fighter pay won't improve until fighters actually take it on upon themselves to understand economics, understand finances, understand what their worth is, understand that these clauses in the contract, a thousand to win is, is or whatever to win. It's fucking bananas, right? Like negotiate it so that you get a flat fucking rate for your yeah. services, right? Because you, you are an independent contractor, right? For, for every organization. And what like view it like another business? If you were um, a landscaper, you're an independent contractor. This is my fucking fee to show. You yeah. don't get, I don't get extra money if I do a good job. Yeah. <laughs> the expectation is that I do a good job. So yeah. this is what I've cost. Here it is. There's no fucking bonus. Like I'm going to come and do a great job, whether I win yeah. or lose is completely irrelevant, and that's it, right? Another thing too is like the use of your likeness, right? So you're going to pay me whatever X amount of dollars, right? And now you're going to use my picture to promote this fight, not just for this fight, but for every event moving yeah. forward, you're going to use my likeness as a promotional tool that I'm going to see $0 from. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, again, like if you, if you, if you know, you're talking about potential or potential upside for me, that's only going to benefit you and it's going to do nothing for me. Right. So, and I understand that like, okay, on a lower level, there's not a lot of money to go around, but it's coming from somewhere. And, um, you know, I think that like, you know, I think you've got to be a little bit creative with how you, you figure out a way to like make it worth your while and it's 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 there if you kind of like are willing to put in the work and be a little bit industrious as a fighter because you have to be like it's like think about how many people on this earth truly are going to retire off of like money from fighting like (laughs) almost almost zero Zero. honestly almost zero so and you know what i mean like there's I uh, things are changing now because I think on the higher end of MMA guys are starting to make big money. Yeah. But um, you know, there's lots of guys who have had really long careers, great careers that don't manage their money well and uh, like, you know, end up having nothing or you know it's good at the time but they're not smart with their money because here's another thing too is that if you're making there's not a lot of like jobs where you can make 5 or 10,000 dollars and actually have that money given to you at once. Yeah. So what you do with that money is also important, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? As far as like investment. And like I said, you're not talking about the stock market or anything like that, but like relish the opportunity to take a lump sum of money. Cause when you have a job, you get paid, you know, bi-weekly or whatever. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's, it's actually a rare opportunity where somebody's going to take this money and fucking give it to you. Yeah. Right. So do something good with it. Don't just fucking blow it. Yeah. Which was what most fighters do. Like, so like I was saying, in, investing in your future. So like if you get a, a $10,000 payday, you know, obviously put aside some for tax. You got to fucking account for that. Put aside some for your living expenses, but whatever's left over, don't fuck around with it. Yeah. Like if you're serious about fighting, say you have an extra three or four grand after all the expenses are paid, you pay all this stuff. You know, take two of that and invest it into your own training and your own development, whether it be therapy, whether it be extra sessions with coaches, et cetera. And then take another two thousand and like I like I do now, I invest in stocks or whatever. How do you how do you make two thousand dollars grow? 
Yeah. Right. So if you can make two thousand dollars grow, that's one less stress that you have to worry about in the future in terms of fighting. You don't have to worry about finances. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Anyway, I gotta get the fuck out of here because I gotta get to, get to the gym. But it was a great fucking chat. I enjoyed it a lot, and we gotta do it again sometime. Uh, tell everybody how they can kind of get in touch with you if they want to even train with you, or as well as just follow your fight career and all that. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at uh, Handsome Scott Hudson and um, my website, handsomescotthudson.com. That's pretty pretty straightforward. My name and nickname for, for, for all of my socials and website. All right, and be- beautiful chat. Uh, when's the next fight? Do you have one coming up? Or? I'm trying to work on something for uh, like uh, June or July, hopefully. All right. Nothing, all right. Nothing, nothing concrete yet. So anyway, reach out to freaking Scott. Train with his ass if you're in uh, you're in Oakville, Burlington kind of area, right? Uh, and you definitely, it's definitely worth your time and money. So, and thank you for your time, Scott. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate it, man. Hey everybody, right. thank you for watching. Please do me a favor, click the like below, share on YouTube, share on Instagram, share on Facebook, spread the word so I can keep creating more content for you keep providing you with a great podcast experience. Peace out.